0: The Valley Hub Stories podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast has been recorded, Gumbanga Country. We acknowledge their continuing connection to and care of country throughout time. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Valley Hub Stories podcast. A quick note that today's episode discusses cultural issues that could be confronting for some people, including female genital mutilation. It is so very worth a listen, but probably best for older ears. Today, I am chatting to one woman who is, frankly, a wonder woman, Barbara Parkins. Barbara is busy that's the best way to describe her, having gone on a journey that led her to live and support the Maasai community through the work of her organisation, Kinney Kenya, uh, in so very many ways. There's a lot to her story, from the whys to the hows to the what nows, and no one better to explain it than Barbara herself. So, let's tune in. Barbara, thanks for joining me on the podcast today.
1: Thank you for welcoming me.
0: Can you tell me a little bit about who
1: you are? Who am I? I grew up in in along Rosewood Road in Warrell Creek. We have the family farm is still there. And you know, went to all the local schools. Then I decided, you know, I went to college and I was living in New Zealand for seven years from there. Then I decided to come back home and then I had my children, you know, did all the usual things. I worked at council for around 17 years. What was your role at council? I was the PA to the director in building and health. Yeah, right. Yeah, and then managing the office staff in that area as well. So I, I like to do... Overseas trips, but I always, you know, had a volunteer component in them. I'd been travelled all over the world, either speaking at churches and different things, or I was, you know, just helping out, you know, doing things in universities, training people, because I love to train. I'm also used to teach at the TAFE here, so. I ended up being invited by my friend to Kenya around 12 years ago. So that's where this second part of my journey of my life began.
0: Mm. Does it kind of feel like it is two different lives, so to speak?
1: Very much. When I talk to people there, I always go, in my other life. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's just a totally and utterly different life you know, different focus, something I, you know, I always wanted to do something, like humanitarian, do something like that, but with what I'm actually doing I never imagined I would have all these children to care for, to love, to educate. I just, you know, thought when I went there I would continue speaking and I would just build a school and educate children and, you know, just do that. But, Mm. yeah, life has other plans and God has other plans.
0: Yeah. So, okay, so you visited Kenya. Yes. And what was the process from there? So how (laughs) did your new life begin? Okay. So
1: I was really looking for something to do. You know, my children had grown. I was divorced, so I was by myself. And I was just looking for something and praying about it for a long time. And... Once I got into Kenya, I knew that there's something about it. When you go there, there's something about it. And I knew probably that was where I was meant to be. Mm. So I was there for about four and a half months with my friend visiting orphanages. We did a trip around. And on the trip, we came to the Maasai village where I am now. And I met one of the Maasai warriors there and we were talking and became friends and he, you know, he was showing me the children that needed help to be educated because, you know, most of them were either orphans or partial orphans, which means they had one parent but who didn't care for them. They were living with grandparents and they, of course, have no money to educate them. So I just went, this is what I need to do. So I came home,
0: yeah. Yeah. I was gonna ask what are the practicalities of kind of picking up your life and moving it <laughs> to Kenya? A huge process because
1: mm. I had a really good job. My boss didn't want me to go. And so but I just had to say, Look, I I have to go. Yeah. I can't stay here anymore. It was, you know, like, you know, I, I'm sure I would have, you know, gone into depression if I'd just had to stay here. Mm. So uh Council was changing then too, so it took a little bit longer than I, you know, wanted, but eventually I was able to resign and leave council. And then, yeah, just having to sort out the farm and sort out the finances and stuff like that, yeah, it was a huge process, you know, but all the time my mind was there and it was a really hard process. So, yeah... Eventually that was sorted, I made the time to go and I said goodbye to my family and
0: off I went. Yeah. What was that first day like when you arrived and kind (laughs) of set yourself up and went, oh, okay, this is where I am now? Yeah, because
1: when I I went back, I actually went right into the deep forest to live and stay there and they built me a mud hut with a grass roof and, you know, and then trying to because there's no conveniences at all mm. but they'd actually built me a toilet outside you know just learning to light these fires on these special you know jikos and stuff but it was uh you know this is this is what I've lived for this is what I've obviously you know grew up on the farm and everything so so it was very remote it take me an hour on the motorbike going through creeks and the bush where you knew that there were buffalo. You could see all the buffaloes, things and hyena and elephants are in there as well. So you kind of had to be on the watch, It, you know, there. But, yeah, it was just, wow, I'm actually doing, you know, something that I really want to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What was that connection like, knowing your family were back home, particularly your kids and... (laughs) I guess probably being pulled in both directions.
1: Yeah, but these days with the, you know, with the phone, with the internet and everything, I mean, I I don't know when I lived in New Zealand, like, oh, I hate to think how many years ago that was, 40 years ago, you know, I'd I'd run to the mailbox every Saturday morning because I know there was a letter from mum there, you know, and to ring was so expensive. So, you know, you really only had that contact then but now it's instant mm. and yeah and you just it's you know sometimes my friends say I can't believe you're way over there and instantly you're telling me something you know so with technology the way it is it's, it's it makes it just so much closer yeah. It's just that it's a very long flight home.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> so tell me about where you are now and how you got there from the deep forest. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. Well, it was the community where I am now. We, um, is a Maasai community and it's situated right on the very edge of the Maasai Mara. Now the Maasai Mara is a very famous park. It's where, if you ever watch David Attenborough and the migration of the wildebeest and the zebras and everything, that's where it comes into. So that's just five minutes down the hill from me. We can, you know, we're not allowed to walk in the park, obviously, but it's right there. So I'm right in the middle now of all the, you know, wild animals. You know, we're in their territory. They come around us. And from the forest, well, I was still working in that area but because the forest was so far, eventually I decided to, because I had a small school running to come and live in the village and they just welcomed me into their actual manyata, which is like a thorn enclosure where many families live. Mm. So I had a small house in there, a cow dung and mud house and so I lived there for quite a few years. And then I moved up the hill a little bit, still part of the community, to a friend's place. And then last year, I actually moved to my own land, which is only, you know, two minutes away from there, just where I now have my school and everything. Mm. Yeah.
0: Okay. So tell me about the school. Okay.
1: My dream when I went to Kenya was to have a school for the children. And I did have a small one there, well, had 70 children, but... I didn't have buildings, I just had like a makeshift, you know, just a roof. And it was behind another public school. So I was just taking in children who were orphans, who had not been in school, who couldn't go to school because of, you know, paying school fees and that. So that went on for quite some time. But then eventually I decided to join with the local school. So I was able then to bring all my children and my teachers into the local school because over there the government doesn't always give you enough teachers, so they have to employ locals. So that's what I I did. I joined with the local school, but my dream was always to have my own school because I don't like the public education there. I mean, most of my children there are in it, But, you know, I wanted something else, especially I had my little baby girl, had her since she was five months old, Mm. and she needed to, you know, she needed to go to school because they go to school at four. Yeah. So I decided this is it. I'm biting the bullet. We're going to start the school. Mm. So that was in 2000, just before COVID. So 2020 we really started and... To now, we have 220 children in the school in four diff- four classes. And the name of the school? It's Kinney Mara Academy. Because Kinney is an acronym for my organisation. I have an organisation, Kisaru and Kera Initiatives. And that means rescue children.
0: Mm. Yeah. On that topic, I think people are going to want to know how <laughs> your little girl came into your care. So we might yeah. come back to that though because I want to ask you about the education system. You just, you briefly referred to the public mm. education system. Can you kind of walk us through what that looks like and and particularly, I guess, in comparison to, you know, what that looks like in Australia and the opportunities that we are privileged to have?
1: Yeah, okay. The public education system there... They've just changed it to, they call it CBC, um, competency-based curriculum. And it's, yeah, very expensive for parents. Governments don't provide all your resources you need. Most, all the schools around me, and there's many schools because there are many children, they've been built by donors from overseas. The government doesn't, you know, help. It may build one classroom somewhere somewhere. But on the whole, it doesn't build those, especially for primary schools. And so it's a big burden on, on parents because they also don't always give enough teachers. Mm. So then even though it's supposed to be free education, they've got to pay for, you know, just to pay the teachers and stuff. And then if they need anything, it's you're sent home and they, you've got to buy it. Yeah. Like, you know. Every every child has to take a ream of paper mm. to school every term, yeah. And in the secondary schools, some of them want two every term. So, you know, where they say it's free education, it's not. And they start at four years old, and it's very much. They don't have the resources. The classes can be seventy, eighty, hundred. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, especially in secondary schools where they're really full. You know, the smallest classes I think any of my children are in are 50, 55 or more. Yeah. So they start at four years old, but it's kind of always full on. The parents are, you know, expecting much. But oftentimes the children are not taught well. There doesn't seem to be a commitment with a lot of the teachers... Especially with the little ones. See, in my school, the school curriculum there is taught in English. So in my school, the teachers, especially for the little ones, have to speak English to them only. I demand that. Until they're in even late PP2 or grade 1, then they can start the Swahili. Mm. Because... They, everything is in English, all exams, everything. So it's, And that's, that's a huge problem, especially in the remote schools like ours, that the teachers don't bother. They, they're lazy. They'll talk to them in their mother tongue or just in Swahili. So the children don't learn to really speak in English. And if you're not speaking it, then you're not understanding it. Mm. So that's why I have so many children in my school because parents love that my children, you know, even four years old, are coming home speaking English. Yeah. Yeah. So then from there, primary school now finishes at class six where they do a big exam and that determines then, you know, where, how they go forward, what kind of schools. We used to finish in class eight and then go to secondary but now they've got junior secondary with this CBC. And imagine in up until grade six, they do about five, I think, well, their marks are out of 500, so they do maybe six, seven subjects. Mm-hmm. Now in class seven, they're doing 17 subjects. Yep. And they're really struggling because they're only 12-year-olds, 13, and they're kind of giving them the work that a, the, the former Form 1s would do, which is two years ahead. Yeah. So, they're, you know, the kids are really struggling. How can you struggle and pass? And my worry is that many will drop out. Mm. And even in secondary school, and from Class 6, they must go to boarding because they, they just think that keeping them you know, in class from four in the morning until ten at night it's going to help them learn. Yeah. You know, I keep trying to, I'm on some of the boards of the schools, mm-hmm. so I keep kind of going, you know, we need to, you know, give them a bit more sleep to start yeah. with <laughs> yeah. and, and other things. So to me that's really hard, But but to get good schools, we've got no secondary schools close to us, so you can't, do a day school, but I send mine about three hours away to, to good schools. The schools there, you know, they're all classed in county, extra county, sub-county and national schools. So the national and the extra county are very good schools. Mm. So that's where I send mine and to a different tribe too to try to get the Maasai, you know, seeing things a bit different rather than just keeping them all together. Mm. Yeah.
0: So tell me about how your little girl came into your care. Oh,
1: my, my baby girl. And, okay.
0: you, you, and, I, and my understanding is that you also have a number of other children. I have actually, Monday
1: to Friday, 45 children from my school, ages four to seven, stay with me. That's a huge thing.
0: And What does dinner time look like? I just want to know. <laughs> well, we have a gazebo and it takes me about half an
1: hour to, to dish up, but they're all, you know, shoved in there because it wasn't built for 45 kids, it was <laughs> built for 25. Yeah, bath time's the best. They've just got dishes outside and we put warm water in it for them. I make them use warm water. And then, yeah, you know, the bigger ones or my bigger kids and my carers for the children, they're just trying to bath them. And, yeah, it's it's quite fun. But... During holidays, when all my children come home, I have 25 that live with me. I've got some boys, um, but it's mainly girls. And they're aged, the youngest boy is six, Naleku is seven, and then it just goes up in age and the older girls are around 20. Mm. So my older boys are around 22. They'll just usually come home for Christmas because they're either working or studying still in university. Because they have nowhere else to go. They just physically have nowhere else to go. Yep. Some of them don't have any family at all. So my home will always be their home. So my little girl, I was, uh, a father came to me one day and I asked him where he heard of me from and he just said some story. But I said, okay, he said, look, I've got two girls, my my wife died, I've got two girls, the grandmother doesn't want to look after them, can you take them? And I said, well, you know, how did the mother die? Oh, she died in childbirth. I said, well, where's the baby? And he said, oh, that's with the grandmother, she's okay. He wasn't even thinking about her. And I said, okay, because when I get a request, I go to their homes and, you know, just check out and I ask people and, because, you know, I need to know that they're really in need.
0: And this is part of the overall function of your... Yes. Kenya, you, you? yeah. Kenya? Yeah,
1: yeah. I rescue girls, I rescue boys, you know, any children that are in danger. I've just, you know, work with someone else to take another four out of one home that were being neglected and abused. And they've been taken to Nairobi to another woman from America who's just starting a home there because mine was a bit full. And mm-hmm. when I went there, it was right in the middle of the forest, about two hours on the motorbike. I walked up and there was many children around and they were coming out of the house and he said, I said, oh, you know, where are all these children? And he said, do you want to see them all? I said, yes. And, and the baby, I said, yes, bring them all out. So they brought out this baby. Now she was five and a half months old. I kind of... Started to work things out when they said who she was, and I just took her, and she was like a newborn. Only she had a little hands up and curled the fingers. She had a head on a side, and she was just sucking two fingers. But she was just so tiny, and I said, "Which baby is this? Is this the? Because you know, it was a grandmother, and she was quite young. She was only forty or something." And she said, no, they said, that's the baby. They never spoke of her by name. And I said, and I started to calculate, and I went, this baby's five and a half months old, it's dying. Oh, you know, and I said, no, she's going to die. I said, I have to take her with me. So we talked and then ended up agreeing that I would take her and then I would take the older girl. There was another one in the middle, but she seemed to be clinging more to the grandmother. And, you know, Maasai tradition too, if your daughter dies, usually one of her daughters will stay with you.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah.
1: So because they don't like being without a daughter around to help them. So, you know, I said to the older girl, do you want to come with me? Because she would have been six at the time. And she said, yes. Yes because I found out later it was quite a terrible situation. She was the one looking after this baby. So when I got this baby home, you know, I undressed her and everyone who came to see her, they said, why did you bring her? She's going to die. I said, no, she won't. So they were just giving her cow's milk, nothing else, and it was out of a bottle that was, the top was burnt off it. It was just terrible. And I, you know, undid a clothes and ah, oh, she had a bone sticking out everywhere. She had sores on her bottom and on her head, and she was completely flaccid, had no muscle tone whatsoever. And I just went, oh, you know, what can I do? So I immediately went and cooked vegetables. Every morning I would milk the goats and the sheep to get enough milk for her. And I just started giving her that and lots of love and I was massaging her as well to try to get the the muscles working and she just started to grow Mm -hmm. and now she's a normal size, very bright seven-year-old. Like I didn't know if she'd have brain damage. We never knew she'd walk. It took her till she was 12 months old just to put weight on her legs. You know, I bought a walkie, friends from Australia gave me one of those j- jolly jumpers, and, yeah. you know, and I used to massage her. But, you know, knowing that you have saved a child from certain death she would have died very soon mm. if I hadn't have taken her, is just, you know, just such a marvellous feeling and when you see them and look at them and the love they have for you because she... You know, she thinks I'm her real mother, her birth mother, um, and she just thinks that everyone there, because all my children, the 25 of them, we live as a family, brothers and sisters, that's, that's how we live. So, you know, she just loves being in the family and sometimes, and her older sister now is 13, and sometimes I just look at them and I think, you know, where would you be, what, you know, what would your life been like mm. if you hadn't come to me. And um, yeah, I just love them all. They're just so beautiful.
0: <laughs> tell me about the older girls. So you said when you when you arrived and that location there were some older children as well, 20-year-olds. No, they're with me now. Are oh, they with you now? Okay. Yeah. So tell me about some of the ways life is different for them. I'm thinking particularly of of the girls to, you know, I guess the the time and space that young women in Australia are granted to kind of come into their
1: yeah. themselves. Okay, um one I've had with me, her mother died not long after I arrived there and left five children. So I've been actually, you know, educating and looking after all of them, but one has been living with me. For, we were trying to work it out the other day. Yeah. She's now about 20, she was 10, so about you know, 9, 10 years she's been living with me. And I just, you know, say to her, I look at other girls her age in the manyata in the village, you know, they've all been married, they've all had children, they're, you know, living a life that is, you know, just poverty, mm-hmm. struggling all the time. And, you know, now she is off to college doing a course, and hopefully next year then she'll be able to work in the camps or somewhere. So, you know, her life is so different. And another one, her um, she'd had a child when she was 14 and then her mother passed away the following year. Her mum was my very good friend. So she, there was her and her sister and I said, you know, I'll make sure that they're in school. And this one, she was, she'd already had the child. So the brother kept trying... He'd married her off once and she'd come back and then he tried to marry her off a second time and she just refused <laughs> and fought until she escaped from there and so I brought her to live with me because it's really hard for these girls to, to know the best way to live. So many of them misbehave, you know, get pregnant and that and so with me, I'm very strict, I keep them with me and so she decided to come and live with me. So she's about to finish secondary school now. So she would have just been married off and forced to be married. Yeah. And that's, that's look, many of the girls in, in, in our village, they've either had, you know, especially if they go and undergo FGM,
0: mm.
1: you, you live within 12 months, 18 months, they've got a baby.
0: Yeah, right. And then they can just be married off. Tell me about, so I guess, some of the consequences <laughs> It feels like a very light word to use in that context, but of, of female genital mutilation.
1: Okay. In the past, they used to really do it where they took everything, inner labia, outer labia, the clitoris, everything. and So that would be this huge open wound. And then, of course, as it healed, it leaves scarring. Mm. And, of course, many bled to
0: death. When and a, and a what what age was it generally performed? Okay, it's it's kind
1: of changing a bit. Before they used to do it when the girls got engaged, maybe about seventeen, eighteen, right. but now they're changing. And because it's illegal, it's totally illegal in the country. So now they're kind of getting the twelve, thirteen, fourteen year old girls and doing them. Mm. They're not doing it so invasive. Um, they may just take the clitoris out and maybe the outer labia or something. But still there's, you know, it was two years ago there was a girl died. She bled to death. Of course they can still get infections. There's a lot of old women that have never had children and some of it could be because they had infections when they were circumcised. But, you know, the trauma of it, because there's no anaesthetic or anything mm. and you're not allowed to make a noise when they're doing it, the trauma of it and also... When they do it, they're then told, you're a woman now. You know, you can get married, you can have children. And so it's this kind of brainwashing that the reason then, you know, it's supposed to be done to stop them from, you know, being promiscuous. But it basically has the opposite effect. And so that's why I said, all the girls in my village have had babies, Mm. the ones that were done. And that's really sad to me because they've all dropped out of school. They've, you know, got no future. Some have <laughs> been married off. You know, that's quite often into an abusive relationship. They yeah. could be a second wife. They could be a third wife or just to a young man and he'll get another wife. Mm. So, you know, that's some of the, the consequences of it. Whereas, you know, if they don't have that, then they can concentrate more on on their schooling and looking to a better life. Yep. Yeah.
0: Yep. And I guess women in, in sort of that bearing arena as well are probably, you know, struggling to access adequate healthcare, maternal healthcare too. Yeah. Um, to, to deal with some of the challenges from childbirth and yes. beyond. Because
1: usually I think around 90%, especially if they've been circumcised, need to be cut mm. during delivery. You actually quite find quite a few cerebral palsy really? children. Yeah. And yeah, I have one theory it's because they've been pushing, you know, pushing too long can't get the children out, especially yep. if they're not. Because they still quite often have them at home. Mm. They've just got one of the older women who's been trained to cut but not trained to suture. Mm. So she would cut and then not suture. And these young girls having them, often they don't go to the clinic because there's no money and they don't no one to take them and look after them. We do have a very good clinic that is about seven kilometres away. Um, So I'm quite often called in the middle of the night because you imagine when you're fully in labour going on a motorbike on the roughest of roads. Mm -hmm. And if it's rained, you're just sliding everywhere. They're all dirt roads. So we do have a good clinic where they can access good health care, but many of these young ones, they don't go, they don't even tell people they're pregnant until they can be yeah, six months, seven months. So they haven't had any prenatal care. We do have quite a high rate of infant mortality and, you know, even babies dying when they're born, still mothers dying in childbirth. We don't have... This one facility is run by Americans who live not far from me and it is a very good facility. But still, you know, if there's any... um, It's still very remote, so if they need a cesarean or anything, they've got to go to town, which is an hour and a half away, on very bad roads. Mm. We can't even access town if it's rained. They just don't have, you know, like even in the town... There was a, I had a little boy, These HB was down, need a blood transfusion. Oh, there's no blood in the hospital. Oh, we don't have the, the, the whatever they need to test the blood for that. Mm. You know, they're just so under equipped, and you don't see many doctors, they're usually clinicians yeah. or even where I am where there's a clinic, you know, the clinic is just a phlebotomist that so just tests your blood and then he'll prescribe everything. So it's a totally different world in, as far as healthcare. And there's no... You can't get children... Like, there's many children in my school. I really would like them assessed because I think my big girl has... Uh, she can't read properly the number Dyslexia. Numbers. Dyslexia, mm. that's the word. But there's nowhere where you can get them tested unless you go all the way to Nairobi and then, you know, probably cost you a fortune. Would and, there be
0: any supports anyway? To, and there's nothing... Yeah.
1: Yeah, there's just nothing there. You know, I have children that I know have mental health issues and I just say to the teachers, what can we do, you know, because there's just no help. There's just no help and, you know, and there's cerebral palsy. Yes, they can take them to the physiotherapist, but there's, you know, there's no way for them. There is a school for the mentally challenged and there may be some for the... There is one for the cerebral palsy, but it's like four hours, five hours away. Yep. So how can you just, you know, take your child and leave it when it's young? Yeah. So those are things that I struggle with there, the health and just the availability of services. There aren't any, and especially where I am. Yep. Yeah.
0: So for, for such a busy person, I'm just contemplating the logistics of, well, A, feeding, 25 kids <laughs> and paving 25 <laughs> kids, but then also just the logistics of day-to-day, the day-to-day running of the home plus the school plus your organisation and how, how? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and there too, plan A for the day never
1: gets done. It gets down to plan D, E, F. It's, yeah, I have kind of very late nights and I'm up up early in the morning And it's just struggling because I I sponsor 150 children in 50 different institutions. So I've got to, you know, I'm always in touch with the schools. They're always ringing me for something, you know, and just making sure the fees are paid and trying to work out, you know, if if we've got money to pay the fees because many of them are not sponsored, so I'm really struggling paying Mm. their fees. So... Yeah, so there's a, that whole thing there. So, uh, I, I, yeah, I don't know how I do it. I just have to do it because it's there. And you know, I do have a head teacher at the school, so I, you know, I let him run the school, you know, in consultation with me. And I, you know, but I still have to keep an eye on all the finances, making sure it's all receipted. I do have a bursa there, so it's just you know a matter of just kind of coordinating everything, which is not always easy. It's not like here where you can t- tell someone to do something and it'll be done. You always got to chase it up and check. Mm. So, yeah, and trying to do, you know, fundraising as well, getting my newsletters out, contacting donors. Yeah, it's all <laughs> full on. Let me do you, I haven't had a day off in six years since yeah. I was last time. <laughs>
0: Tell me about how people here can support you to keep doing what you're doing. Okay. We
1: need funding for continuing to build the school, but the biggest thing we need are sponsorships for the children because I've got, as I said, 150 children and there could be like uh, half of them that are not sponsored. Mm. And when you look at, how much it is, like for primary school, it's quite cheap. If they're in boarding, it is either three or $400 a year to keep them in primary. Mm. Once they go into secondary, it's $600 for the year. Yep. So, you know, that's in a boarding school and a good boarding school. So if these children that I sponsor do have parents, then, you know, and they are able... Then, you know, I get them to do their shopping for the boarding and, you know, and there's a couple of other fees at the school I ask them to try and pay. But many of these children, not just the ones living with me but the ones out there, their, parent, their mother will be single. Mostly they're one parent. And they've got absolutely nothing. They struggle every day just to find some food. Mm. So, you know... I can't very well go, well, I'm not giving you any shopping, mm-hmm. but your mother's supposed to do that when I know that she has nothing. Yeah. Some of them have nothing. So, yeah, that's, that's a really, really big thing that we need. And also, yeah, building of the school. I need classrooms built because I've got no classrooms for next year and I've got 70 children in one classroom at the moment with two teachers but at least I have two teachers, but I need the classrooms. I've got them half built to be finished and then some more built. Those are two my main projects. Eventually the, we're all just living in tents at the moment, the big safari tents. Yeah. Um, eventually I want to build a, a, a rescue centre for 48 girls because I have to turn them away. You know, we do kind of, I say to the girls, this one has to come, so you better move over yeah. because they will be, they will come to me or, you know, I'll have a teacher at a school ring me and say, you know, this girl needs a safe place to go. So, you know, that I want to build that um, rescue centre as well. That's kind of my, my dream. Yeah. But at the moment I need my school finished and these other children sponsored.
0: Okay, so... If people want to have a chat to you about how they can do that, what is the best way for them to contact you?
1: Email is good or they can – I've got a Facebook page which is Kisaru and Kera N-K-E-R-A initiatives and it's K-I-S-A-R-U and that's kind of the best way because you can message me on there and, or you can email me. I can leave my email address for you. And, yeah, we can just chat. I can send you our newsletters on my website, which is kinnykenya.com Then there are all the newsletters and everything on there. So you can kind of see the work that I've been doing and how I help the children. And also you can donate there through Rotary because I'm a member of Rotary and my organisation's registered with them, which means they get tax deductibility for their their donations. Great. Yeah. Yep. So that's, there's a link to that on, on the website. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. It was really interesting to, to read your article that was on the website earlier in the uh, – <laughs> well, actually late last year because this, this episode is going live early next year. <laughs> okay. But, um, yes, it was, it was excellent to read about um, some of the, the work and, and equally excellent and also really sad. So I think everybody will feel the same way in, in saying that the work that you're doing is incredible and quite unbelievable in lots of ways and I guess as a community we, we would be really proud of you. For Thank you. For doing so.
1: Yeah, it's a totally different life and it's not easy, let me tell you. <laughs> Sometimes I sit down and think, why am I doing this? Yeah. Because you know, culturally it's so different and doing things is so different I'm just really enjoying driving on the roads here. <laughs> there's no mud or holes. Yeah, so it's you know, it's not it's not an easy thing. Mm. And but it just brings me joy and I you know, and I know this is what I'm meant to do. It's not you know, there's nothing else that I'm looking at doing. Yeah. Because when you see a child, you know, grow and go to school that you know would have been married off or dead. Two of mine probably would have died if I hadn't have taken them. And, you know, when you see them grow and become beautiful women and they're being educated in that, it's just all worthwhile. Yeah. It all all the, the hard bits go away.
0: Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you, Barbara. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Valley Hub Stories podcast. If you'd like to support Barbara and her work at Kinney Kenya, you can find links for contact in the show notes. We love hearing what you think. So please, as always, reach out via our socials at the NV or email us at info at au. Bye for now.